Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Treatment of COVID-19 has largely focused on hospitalized patients with moderate to severe disease. While patients stable enough for emergency department discharge are given instructions to quarantine and only return if symptoms worsen. In select patients, monoclonal antibody infusions have paved the way for outpatient treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 with the goal of preventing progression to severe disease. Today, one of Mayo Clinic's ED pharmacists, Dr. Cassie Schmidt, goes mad for MABS and reviews the safety and efficacy of outpatient COVID-19 treatments with monoclonal antibodies and oral antiviral medications. To set the stage for today's Pharmacy Grand Rounds, imagine that you're a pharmacist in your local emergency department. Our patient GS is a 57-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with fatigue, shortness of breath, and fever. Her past medical history is listed below, and you notice that her vital signs and her labs are relatively unremarkable with the exception of the fact that she's febrile. You catch yourself wondering if she has COVID, and you note that her chest x-ray looks pretty bad to the pharmacist's eye. Her nasopharyngeal swab then comes back as positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. At this point, the emergency department provider approaches you asking what COVID-19 treatment options are available for this patient that is stable for outpatient treatment and has mild to moderate COVID-19 disease. Before you can begin to answer this question, you'll need to identify risk factors associated with progression to severe COVID-19 in this specific patient. You'll then engage in a discussion regarding the efficacy and safety of outcomes of these novel agents for the outpatient management of this patient's disease. You'll then use shared decision-making to select the ideal treatment regimen for this patient based on a number of patient-specific factors. While our patient presented to the emergency department today with stage one or early infection, given that she's been experiencing cough, fever, diarrhea, and headache over the last three days. Patients can then progress into phase two or the pulmonary phase as the virus begins replicating in ACE2 receptor-rich pulmonary alveoli. This is when patients tend to begin experiencing shortness of breath and hypoxia. Patients can then progress into stage three or the inflammation phase. As the immune response begins to ramp up and patients can become hyperinflammatory. Patients can then progress to acute respiratory distress syndrome and oftentimes multi-organ failure. While it is difficult to predict the specific um, direction of a patient's COVID-19 illness, there are certain risk factors that can increase the patient's likelihood for progression to this severe disease. At this point of the pandemic, we know that our, our uh, most um, reasonable way of preventing progression to severe disease is through vaccination. So the CDC reports that in approximately three-fourths of the patient population is currently vaccinated for COVID-19 in the United States, and that's patients that have received at least one dose. There has been a study by the CDC looking at patients that were vaccinated, and they noted risk factors that included an age greater than 65 years, immunosuppression, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, 
cardiac disease, pulmonary disease, neurologic, and liver disease, as patients had a one to three times increased risk for progression to severe disease. Now, looking at the graph on the right, we see the frequency of risk factors in vaccinated people with COVID-19. And here you can see that as the number of risk factors increase, so does the patient's risk for severe disease. Looking at our COVID-19 therapeutics, I'll begin briefly with our vaccinations. As I previously mentioned, this is our best bet at preventing progression to hospitalization or severe disease. Then we have our neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, which first included bamlanivimab and edisivimab, as well as cazarivimab and indevimab. These first two monoclonal antibodies were uh, authorized by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19, as well as for post-exposure prophylaxis in patients that have been exposed and are suspected to be uninfected. Our last neutralizing monoclonal antibody is citrovimab, which is currently only authorized for use of mild to moderate COVID-19 treatment and is not used for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Jumping ahead to severe COVID-19, we have our immunomodulators, baricitinib, dexamethasone, and tocilizumab that work to dampen the immune response in patients with severe disease. Now we have our antivirals. So early on into the beginning of the pandemic, we began using remdesivir in mild to moderate hospitalized COVID-19 patients. However, this was really our only antiviral agent up until recently. Now we have two new agents called molnupiravir and nirmatrivir and ritonavir, which are two oral agents that can be used for outpatient treatment. All right, so I'd like to pause here and start with our first assessment question. So here's the case again that I showed to you at the beginning of the presentation, and it is up here for your review before we move on to the assessment question. All right, our first question is, what regimen would you recommend for the treatment of GS's COVID-19? If you take out your phone and go to pollev.com forward slash MayoRx, or you can text MayoRx to 22333. And I'll just read off the answer choices as everyone is selecting an answer. A is bamlanivimab and edisivimab. B is citrovimab. C, molnupiravir. And D, remetrivir and ritonavir. All right, so while people are coming in and responding still, I'll go ahead and go through the answers. So you're probably wondering, how am I supposed to make this decision, as I haven't yet provided you with information and background on each of these agents. So this assessment question is really to assess your baseline knowledge, and I hope that by the end of this presentation, you are able to feel comfortable selecting a treatment regimen for a patient like GS. All right, so we're going to begin today with our monoclonal antibodies. The Food and Drug Administration has given emergency use authorization to the three monoclonal antibodies or MABs listed below. I'll start off with talking about uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic here in Minnesota and how this shapes the monoclonal antibodies that we can use. So shortly around Thanksgiving time of 2021, the Minnesota Department of Health reports that the primary variant of COVID-19 was the Delta variant. However, shortly after this, on December 1st of 2021, the United States Center for Disease Control reported a variant of concern known as Omicron. Shortly after Omicron was identified, the Minnesota Department of Health reported about 5% of our COVID-19 cases as being related to Omicron. 
Fast forwarding to two weeks just before the holiday times, we see that Omicron is now making up more than 70% of our cases in Minnesota. And then two weeks from then, riding right into the new year, we see that Omicron remains the predominant variant in Minnesota's uh, COVID-19 cases. Now you're probably wondering why does this matter? So here we have our COVID-19 variant. And by this point in the pandemic, I'm sure you've he heard about the spike protein on the viral, viral cell. The spike protein is responsible for binding to the ACE2 re receptor on the host cell to begin the process of viral replication. It is the same spike protein that is recognized by the immune system's antibodies, therefore neutralizing the virus. However, the virus, like most RNA viruses, are really good at mutating pretty quickly. So the uh, COVID-19 virus has multiple mechanisms of mutagenesis for which it continues to mutate and uh, reduce efficacy of our monoclonal antibodies. Through these mechanisms, it alters its amino acid sequence, it increases ACE2 binding affinity, it glycosylates the spike protein, therefore reducing the detectability by the immune system, and it causes allosteric changes in the surrounding spike proteins that again, reduces detection by the immune system. So here we have our COVID-19 virion again, which as it goes to the ACE2, ACE2 receptor on the host cell to bind, here we have our antibodies that neutralize the cell. Now you're probably wondering why I'm showing this to you again. This is the mechanism of monoclonal antibodies, which can be administered exogenously through our MABs, such as citrovimab, or it can be antibodies that are acquired through exposure and through the adaptive immune response. The current three available MABs that are on the market include bamlanivimab, cazarivimab, and imdevimab, as well as citrovimab. So the first two that I'll talk about all um, kind of compare similarly to each other as they both bind on the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. This is important because this receptor binding domain is the part that's highly mutagenic on the spike protein. And therefore, as the virus has mutated into Delta and Omicron, we've seen greater than a thousand fold reduction in activity against the Omicron variant itself. You're probably wondering what makes citrovimab different. Citrovimab binds to a highly conserved site on the receptor binding domain that is not, has not yet been mutated. Therefore, it has retained activity against Omicron. Now, as our supply of monoclonal antibodies has all of a sudden been cut down by two thirds, you're probably wondering how we're supposed to choose who is eligible to receive monoclonal antibody therapy. Mayo Clinic has developed the monoclonal antibody screening score, also known as the mass number, using the criteria for use from the FDA emergency use authorization, as well as internal patient data that has recently been published in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. The mass score is made up of a number, number of factors that indicate an increased risk for severe disease and that these patients should be eligible to receive monoclonal antibodies. This includes immunocompromise or transplant history, kidney disease, age greater than 65, pregnancy, diabetes, age greater than 55 with cardiovascular or pulmonary disease, a body mass index greater than 35, or an age greater than 55 years with hypertension. 
So the magic number of the MAS score for which uh, we determine patients are eligible to receive MABs varies on a daily basis. When we had three MABs available, the magic number was one. Patients had to have at least one risk factor. However, now with citrovimab being the only option available, this number continues to change. And uh, I think currently is a mass of at least four. So because citrovimab remains our one monoclonal antibody that's effective against the Omicron variant, that's the only one that I'm going to cover today. The Comet ICE study looked at the early treatment of COVID-19 and patients uh, being administered the neutralizing antibody, citrovimab. This was a phase three multi-center double-blind trial that enrolled patients to receive either 500 milligrams IV once of citrovimab versus placebo. Patients were included in the trial if they were unvaccinated adults with COVID-19 that had at least one risk factor for severe disease. And in this study, risk factors included an age greater than 55, obesity, an EGFR less than 60, CHF, COPD, and asthma. And these patients enrolled in this trial had to present and receive the drug within five days of symptom onset. Here, the primary outcome of the Comet ICE study was hospitalization greater than 24 hours or death by day 29. And I would like to caveat that the following data represents the interim analysis report of the Comet ICE study. So our baseline patient population characteristics included uh, about 50% males and females in both arms of the study. Median age was about 53 years, and the number one risk factor for severe disease was obesity, the next being age greater than 55, with a smaller number of patients having diabetes and moderate to severe asthma. While the study did have a cutoff of five days uh, for symptom onset, I would like to point out too that about 60% of these patients presented within the first three days. So here's our primary outcome, again, of hospitalization greater than 24 hours or death within 29 days. We see an absolute risk reduction with citrovimab of 6%, which correlates to a relative risk reduction of 85% and a number needed to treat of 17 patients. This means that for every 17 patients we treat, one will have one patient will be saved from a hospitalization or death due to COVID-19. And just to break down these numbers further, we can see that three, the 1% of the patients in the citrovimab group that achieved the primary outcome all experienced hospitalization. This is compared to 21 patients in the placebo group with two patients dying in the placebo group. I would also like to note that the three patients that underwent hospitalization, none of which were admitted to the ICU. And last but not least, safety regarding the administration of citrovimab. Uh, the number one adverse event reported in the study was diarrhea, which occurred about in about 1% of patients. A second adverse event was dyspnea, which occurred in less than 1% of the patients. It was not any different than placebo. So overall, I have a couple of considerations for the use of citrovimab. It should be considered for use in patients who are not a candidate for oral therapy, such as those that are pregnant. One of the barriers to administering citrovimab currently remains that it's supply as well as healthcare resources. One of the healthcare resources consideration is space for the patients to receive the infusion as well as for post-infusion monitoring. There's currently an ongoing study called the Comet Peak Study looking at IM administration of citrovimab, which could be done in an outpatient setting or before ED discharge. 
All right, let's pause for another Poll Everywhere question. Citrovimab retains its efficacy against the, Om the COVID-19 Omicron variant due to which of the following? A, it binds to a site alternative to the RBD. B, its binding site is highly conserved on the receptor binding domain. C, citrovimab can overcome glycosylation of the receptor binding domain. Or D, it has a higher binding affinity for the viral spike protein. All right, it looks like we have a good number of responses already. So I'll go ahead and go through the answers. So the majority of you are correct in that B is the correct answer as citrovimab does bind to a site that is highly conserved on the receptor binding domain. Therefore, A is incorrect uh, because the binding site is on the receptor binding domain. C is incorrect because glycosylation of the receptor binding domain is a mechanism of mutagenesis that really doesn't have much to do with citrovimab. And then D is also incorrect as a higher binding affinity for the viral spike protein is not the reason for which citrovimab, citrovimab retains efficacy. All right, moving into our oral agents. So at the end of December of 2021, the Food and Drug Administration produced emergency use authorization for our first oral treatment, molnipiravir. As the SARS-CoV-2 virus replicates its genome by duplicating additional positive sense RNA strands to produce additional strands available for replication. Our drug, molnipiravir, is a pyrimidine ribonucleoside analog, which likes to bind with our purine base pairs, adenine and guanine, and therefore causing lethal mutagenesis in the replication of the virus. Molnipiravir has been studied in the Move Out trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine of late 2021. It was a phase three double-blind parallel group trial that randomized patients to either 800 milligrams of molnipiravir by mouth twice daily versus placebo for five days. It should be noted here that this included the standard of care, which was antipyretics and steroids. Included patients in this trial, again, were unvaccinated non-pregnant adults with COVID-19, and they had to have at least one risk factor, again, for progression to severe disease. Here, the age cutoff was 60 years, diabetes, a BMI greater than 30, or other diseases such as CKD, heart disease, COPD, and cancer. And again, similar to our common ICE study, patients had to present within five days of symptom onset. Our primary outcome here is the incidence of hospitalization or death through day 29. For our baseline population characteristics, we see that total there were just over 1,400 patients enrolled in the study. There were slightly more female patients in the molnipiravir group, and the median age between both groups was about 43 years. Here, the risk factors for severe disease most commonly included obesity, which again was defined as a BMI greater than 30. Our other uh, comorbid risk factors was old, older age, greater than 60, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. I also want to point out that this trial did dichotomize patients based on their uh, mild or moderate COVID-19. This was defined by the World Health Organization, with mild being those patients that are symptomatic but have no derangements in their vital signs. Moderate disease is, is essentially those patients that are symptomatic, and maybe tachypnic or tachycardic, 
above baseline, but have no increase in oxygen requirements. And so just over half of these patients enrolled in the study had mild disease and were all symptomatic. So the move out study reports their data in an interim analysis and then again in a final analysis. At the interim analysis, 29 day death and hospitalization had an absolute risk reduction of approximately 6.8% in patients that were treated with molnupiravir. This led to a relative risk reduction of 48% and a number needed to treat of 14 patients. So you might be thinking, all right, that sounds pretty good. If I get sick, I want molnupiravir. However, the study does also report their final analysis of all randomized patients. Here we see less, an less of an effect in patients that are treated with molnupiravir. The absolute risk reduction is only 2.9% with a relative risk reduction of 30%. Here, the number needed to treat increases to 34 patients. Some conclusions from the move-out study is that molnupiravir reduces hospitalizations and death in mild to moderate COVID-19 with unclear magnitude. When you take into account patients that were admitted to the hospital or experienced mortality, in taking into account events that were specifically related to COVID-19, that confidence interval actually includes zero, indicating that there was no difference with molnupiravir compared to placebo. And while molnupiravir has a mechanism of action that should maintain uh, activity independent of spike protein mutations, it is unclear how um, efficacious it will be moving forward as the uh, COVID virus continues to mutate into less virulent strains. And then also the efficacy of molnupiravir is uncertain in, unvaccinated, in vaccinated patients and standard risk patients as these were typically excluded from the study. However, there is ongoing studies uh, looking at this patient population. And I have a couple of prescribing and dispensing considerations that all healthcare providers should be aware of. So again, molnupiravir is only approved for adult patients as there was concern for bone growth and development in animal studies, which contraindicates its use in children. Molnupiravir is unique in that it has no renal or hepatic dose adjustments that are necessary. This is because it undergoes metabolism in the same way that our extra DNA base pairs do as well. And because of this, there are no significant drug-drug interactions that have been identified at this time with molnupiravir. And again, this should be used in patients with risk factors for severe disease, and it is not for use in hospitalized patients. I have two counseling points left for you on the use of molnupiravir. So it does come in a 200 milligram capsule, and patients should be instructed that they're taking four capsules with every dose, as the dose is 800 milligrams by mouth twice a day for five days. And last but not least, an important counseling patient point for pharmacists and prescribers is that females are recommended to use contraception for up to four days following the last dose. However, men are encouraged to use contraception for three months following the last dose. And this is uh, due to concerns of teratogenicity that were seen in early animal studies. And further look into this is currently ongoing. Nearly simultaneous to the approval of molnupiravir, also came the approval for the emergency use authorization of a medication called nirmatrivir or ritonavir and ritonavir. While this is very fun to say uh, and could be debated or pronounced in a couple of different ways, I'll do my best to refer to it from here on out as Paxlovid. 
Viral replication undergoes a step called proteolysis, which occurs between translation and transcription. Proteolysis occurs when the M-pro or main protease comes and cleaves the replicase polypeptide down into smaller functional polypeptides. Dermatrevere works by coming in and binding to the main protease and thereby preventing the cleavage of our replicase polypeptide. And therefore, the cells unable to produce the proteins needed for transcription. Now you're wondering, what's the ritonavir here for? Ritonavir actually doesn't have any antiviral activity against the SARS-CoV-2 virus and is only co-formulated with ritonavir to reduce CYP3A4 metabolism of nermatrivir. Paxlovid was studied in the EPIC-HR study with the HR standing for high-risk patients. This was a phase two slash three double-blind randomized trial that enrolled patients to either the Paxlovid 300 and 100 milligram by mouth twice a day group versus placebo for five days. Again, the patients included in the study were unvaccinated non-pregnant adults with COVID-19 that had at least one risk factor for progression to severe disease. Some of these risk factors included a BMI greater than 25, sickle cell disease, uh, patients that relied on mechanical devices for support, as well as other neurocognitive diseases. And this is in addition to the standard inclusion criteria of our other studies, which also included diabetes, COPD, and diseases as such. And then prior, similar to our prior studies, patients had to present within five days of symptom onset. Here, our primary outcome is 28-day hospitalization or death. Before we move further, I'd like to caveat that the following data is presented from the information obtained from clinicaltrials.gov, press releases, and the FDA emergency use authorization, as this data has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal. Because it has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal, little is really known about their enrolled patients. So I have for you the exclusion criteria from the trial. Patients were excluded if they were vaccinated or if they had liver disease due to concern for hepatotoxicity with the ritonavir component. Patients were also excluded if they had kidney disease as uh, the, the portion nermetrivir requires renal dose adjustments. And then lastly, patients were excluded if they had an oxygen saturation less than 92%, as that, that did not meet the criteria for mild to moderate disease. I also wanna point out that patients were excluded if they were on home medications that were expected to have significant drug-drug interaction, interactions through CYP3A4. I do have a small list obtained from the study. However, this list is not all-inclusive. And I do encourage anyone prescribing Paxlovid to consult their pharmacist to manage these drug-drug interactions. Our primary outcome of 28-day death or hospitalization, here we see that there was an absolute risk reduction of about 5.5% in those patients that received Paxlovid. This correlates with an 89% relative risk reduction and a number needed to treat of 17. Looking at 28-day all-cause mortality, we see that 12 patients in the placebo group compared to zero in the Paxlovid group experienced mortality. And last but not least, the adverse effects associated with Paxlovid were hypertension, diarrhea, loss of taste, and myalgias. Now you're probably wondering why is she just kind of skimming over these results? There's really uh, no other published information regarding Paxlovid, just since we don't have a peer-reviewed journal article to go and dissect piece by piece. 
So some standard prescribing and dispensing considerations for Paxlovid is that it comes in a, a single dose pack for adults and children, uh, children that are at least 12 years of age and weigh at least uh, 40 kilos. And so these are patients that have normal renal function and they should be instructed to take two of the pink tablets, which are each nermatrovir 150 milligrams with one of the white pills, which is ritonavir 100 milligrams. Now on the right, I show you the patients that have renal dose adjustments for an eGFR of 30 to 60. These patients should only be getting nermatrovir 150 milligrams with each dose rather than the 300 milligram dose. The FDA has indicated that it's the responsibility of the dispensing pharmacist to punch out those extra nermatrovir tablets and to put a label over those spots so that the patient knows that they're not supposed to be there in that dose pack. Additionally, again, it's not recommended for use in patients with child Q class C liver disease, again, with the concerns for the ritonavir component. Some overall conclusions about the use of Paxlovid, again, is that it really, without more information, we have limited crit critical interpretation of the outcomes. Prescribers should also be aware of the significant drug-drug interactions that will require either holding home medications or dose adjustments. And then similarly to molnipiravir, studies are ongoing for standard risk patients as well as vaccinated patients. And we'll pause for our final assessment question of today's Pharmacy Grand Rounds. JL is a 30-year-old female who presents to her COVID-19 appointment with symptoms of fatigue, headache, cough, and fever. She reports that her rapid antigen test at home was positive. She is unvaccinated and is concerned about being COVID positive as she just found out that she is six weeks pregnant. Her vital signs are listed below and you notice again that she's febrile. I have her past medical history listed where she has severe asthma and bipolar disorder and takes the following home medications. What treatment regimen would you recommend for JL's mild to moderate COVID-19? So our answer choices are A, molnipiravir, B, Paxlovid, C, famlanivimab and edisivimab, as well as D, citrovimab. All right, it looks to be about the same number that we had last time, so I'll go ahead and go through the answers. So while molnipiravir is not technically contraindicated in pregnancy, it is not recommended for use as we don't know the safety. However, if you do find that a patient becomes pregnant or is pregnant while taking molnipiravir, the FDA has actually put up a pregnancy surveillance program for uh, providers and prescribers to report outcomes with these patients. B is also incorrect because Paxlovid has not been studied in pregnancy and therefore we'd be able to, uh, unable to recommend its use in patients who are pregnant. And C, I'm glad none of you picked this choice as bamlanivimab and edisivimab are no longer really efficacious against the Omicron variant. And that leaves us with answer choice D, which would have good efficacy against Omicron and would be safe in a pregnant patient. So here I have a summary slide for you comparing citrovimab with molnipiravir and Paxlovid. In the interest of time, I'll not go through this slide completely, but we'll leave it here for your reference. So you're probably wondering, how does this all fit together? The uh, NIH has produced this four-tiered system indicating patients that are at higher risk and should be prioritized for treatment. 
Patients in tier one are either immunocompromised or unvaccinated over the age of 65 with risk factors. And then as we go to tier two, this changes to be patients over 65 without risk factors and then under 65 with risk factors. Tier three, again, is vaccinated individuals over 65 with risk factors. And then tier four is vaccinated individuals less than 65 with risk factors. So essentially the things to consider are, is my patient immunocompromised? Have they been vaccinated or are they unvaccinated? What is their age? And do they have at least one risk factor? Now you may have noted that the risk factors for inclusion in the different studies really were different between the three studies in terms of age, BMI, and other comorbid conditions. The CDC has a quite comprehensive list of risk factors that it would encourage you to refer to in determining if a patient is eligible for therapy. Now, if you were to ask me what uh, treatment would I recommend for my grandmother, I would want her to get citrofamab first. It has shown to be safe and have good efficacy, while it would also provide a durable response that would last for at least a few months. If citrovimab were not uh, available, I would then want her to get Paxlovid, again being cautious of certain drug-drug interactions that could occur. And last but not least, with the unknown efficacy of how uh, molnipiravir really uh, holds up in the all-randomized population, that's why I would put molnipiravir last, as um, it could be beneficial, but we really don't have great data to support that it is much different than placebo. And last but not least, I'll cover our policies here at Mayo Clinic. So first, citrovimab use. Patients should present within 10 days of symptom onset. They should have a mass score greater than four, or if they are pregnant with or with an immunocompromising condition. And this does include children that are at least 12 years of age. For molnipiravir and Paxlovid, the inclusion criteria for use are pretty similar between them both. So again, this is only recommended for patients that present within five days of symptom onset, those that have mild to moderate disease, or those with a qualifying condition. And I'll also note that prescribing of these agents is currently li limited to our outpatient COVID-19 treatment team who will be contact contacting patients after uh, they are found to be positive and assessing these patients for eligibility to receive one of these outpatient treatments. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.